Hello and welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich, the podcast that celebrates the art of conversation with creative people who have something to say and people with passion. I, for instance, have a passion for all things Star Trek, particularly the original series. And anybody who knows me knows that I quote lines from Kirk, Spock, and McCoy all day long, even have a plastic phaser set to stun by my side. So when I had the opportunity to interview Ryan Britt, who as a writer and editor spends his time examining science fiction and pop culture, I said absolutely. Why? Because he has a great new book called Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. I had it beamed to my office immediately, dove in, and absolutely loved it. You don't have to be a super geeky fan to appreciate the impact of Star Trek for over 60 years. So let's engage warp speed right now. And welcome a great guy, Ryan Britt, as he steps in to join us on the bridge and on mic. Ryan, I am so excited to be chatting with you. And we have a mutual friend, or certainly a mutual acquaintance, Nicholas Meyer, who's been a guest on my podcast. (laughs) I don't think that my career would exist without him uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, And yeah, he's he's a great guy. Nick Meyer is one one of, of people you can count on one hand who actually read this book from start to finish uh, and gave notes uh, before it was published. <laughs> well, as, as Sherlock Holmes, one of his other heroes, he's very thorough. He investigates things very thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. well, my, but that's funny because my relate. so I, I, Nick is just somebody who I know through correspondence. We've met once in person, um, but I, I cold-called Nick basically uh, in 2010 um, when I was working on a sh- small essay for a small science fiction. Well, they're a good, they're a big science fiction magazine, but you might not have heard of them called Clark's World. Mm-hmm. I had been uh, commissioned to do a piece on uh, the connections between Sherlock Holmes and science fiction, and I had to interview Nicholas Meyer for that uh, because of his. You know, he wrote. You know, he put Sherlock Holmes's lines in Spock's mouth, um, <laughs> and also I was a big fan of his Sherlock Holmes books um, and just a big fan of his writing in general. And he just graciously like did this lengthy interview with me for that um, essay, um, and that was kind of at the beginning of my career as sort of a science fiction critic slash journalist. Right. And subsequent to that, like a, just a, a lovely correspondence uh, talking about Holmes, yeah. talking about Star Trek, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, great, great stuff. Dickens, you know. So yeah, he, uh, he was. Um, He's a great guy. He's a, a true hero. Wonderful guy. Director of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and, and the sixth movie. And uh, we'll talk about some of the movies in a sec. Why, why do I love the book so much? Well, I'm everything Star Trek. I have a phaser. I've got communicators. I've got everything. I don't, I'm a geek like you. But really what I want to say right at the outset is I was treated to a book that certainly talks about the social implications and uh, inclusion and itic and all those things. But you didn't lose sight of the fact that, for crying out loud, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the yeah. characters make it fun for me. I can quote chapter and verse from just about every series, but the characters and the interplay and the gear and the aliens and the Gorn outfit, I mean, it's just fun. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, my my wife is not, like, a, as big of a um, science fiction or Trekkie as me. Um, she has, like, a big love of it, um, sort of. But I think that her love of it comes sort of similar to a lot of people who aren't huge fans like ours were sort of hazily remembered, you know, like, um, you know, and I think that that represents a huge portion of people that love Star Trek. They love the idea of it. And then when um, we were first married, I was watching, you know, episodes of the original series on Blu-ray because they had just been re-released or something. And she was just like, she's like, these are all so hilarious. 
mm-hmm. you know, we were watching like a piece of the action or something like that. And I think that, yeah, the, the, the fun of Star Trek is something that I think gets, it doesn't get talked about as much. I don't yeah. know why, but I think that it has this strange reputation for being like, uh, you know, the <laughs> eat your vegetables of science fiction. Well, the book uh, the book cover, Ryan, says it all. It's it's called Phasers on Stun, the subtitle, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. But there is a beautiful artistic rendition of Spock, a.k.a. Leonard Nimoy. It's definitely that Spock, the original Spock. It harkens back to being a kid again for me, who grew up with the original series. Yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to... I love uh, exclamation points, uh, much to the chagrin <laughs> of many of my editors at many publications, uh, but, um, and, and italics, these are my two, my two sort of go-tos that, uh, some make people pull their hair out. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, the cover is lovely. We got very lucky with that, with that cover. And, you know, Spock is, um, Spock is kind of synonymous with Star Trek. And I think that, um, it was very important for me in the early chapters to center the book on Spock, because it's so hard to write about the original series in its totality, uh, without getting very much in the weeds for a casual reader. Mm. You know, and there are wonderful books uh, like The 50-Year Mission by Mark A. Altman and Edward Gross, or the These Are the Voyages by Mark Cushman, that take you meticulously through every single production note and every single thing that happens. This book was not that. This book was for, for, a, um, for everybody, for the hardcore fan like you and me, um, and then also for somebody who sort of, you know, may not have touched base with Star Trek and maybe didn't know any of these things and hadn't read any of these books and hadn't seen all the documentaries and behind the scenes. So starting, grounding it with Spock was like the, the big brainstorm that I had uh, initially. And I felt that that was really important, at least for the first uh, four or five chapters of the book. The point is, it's the making and remaking. And even people who are not Starfleet Academy graduates have to know that Star Trek is a cultural phenomenon that has lasted 60 years plus. And what, there are five series currently in production, more yeah. movies coming back, and, and different timelines and different casts. But the, the essence is the same. So let's let's talk a little bit about what you're doing here, besides pointing out the fun, and I'm so glad you did that. You really take us from the, the great bird of the galaxy, uh, Gene Roddenberry, his vision, to how his vision was sort of muddied a little bit, and then he stops doing what he did and comes back a little bit. It's a fascinating story about the creative process, I think. Yeah, I think that the thing with Roddenberry is that I think that the casual fan is, treats Gene Roddenberry the way they, they treat George Lucas. Um, you know, they say, George Lucas created Star Wars and that's it. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? And I think that the reality of the original series and the films and the next generation is that Roddenberry had a variety of collaborators, which he was intelligent enough to hire, you know what I mean, and to employ but that a lot of tension arises out of that. You know, there are 79 hours of the original Star Trek. There are two hours of the 1977 Star Wars. You know, the, the, the totality of Star Trek is, comes from Gene Roddenberry's vision, but I'm not sure that all of it is Gene Roddenberry's vision, Gene Roddenberry's vision nor was it ever intended to be. Um, I think that, um, you know, he was someone who wanted control of his creation, but, you know, there are a lot of other talent that he sought out. Um, and I say this in the book, um, I talked to this wonderful science fiction scholar named Alec Navala Lee, and he pointed out to me that Roddenberry recruiting really hot science fiction writers, science fiction writers who were extremely popular 
and extremely um, familiar with that genre was not something that he had to do, right? Like, he didn't need to go after uh, Robert Block, a mm. horror writer, uh, known for his horror, right. horror short stories. Um, he didn't need to go after Norman Spinrad, a science fiction novelist who had never written a teleplay before. He didn't need to go after Harlan Ellison, who, yes, had written teleplays for The Outer Limits, but was primarily known for his prose. Uh, Theodore Sturgeon, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, George Clayton Johnson, who wrote the very first aired episode of the original series, The Man Trap, who was famous for the novel version of Logan's Run that had won a lot of awards. This is something you can't really imagine now, right? <laughs> the closest thing is like Alex Kurtzman getting Michael Shabone to do Star Trek Picard, <laughs> uh, yes. a, a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. Right. That's kind of the closest thing now. But think about it with other television. Like, there's not a lot of examples of. Um, television shows recruiting like you know scores of really popular short story writers to do episodes of their show well so did, didn't you mention asimov isaac asimov plays a well, role yeah, not, I mean, not as a writer but for the show but as a sort of a contributing thought leader if you will yeah i mean there's a joke i have in there from the lower deck showrunner mike mcmahon who says that it seems like if you go back far enough Asimov wrote for Star Trek. Asimov never wrote a script for Star Trek, but yeah, he and Roddenberry did form that friendship that's described in the book. And, uh, you know, Data's um, laws of robotics, the ethical programming that Data has in the next generation, the Android Data, is directly from Isaac Asimov's, mm. uh, you know, robot books. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that foundation of literary science fiction was sort of catapulted in the mainstream. And so Roddenberry wasn't just somebody who wrote all these characters and invented them, but he gave the keys to the Enterprise, so to speak, to a lot of, you know, other writers who had, uh, you know, more experience with the genre than he did. So that's something I think that is really important to remember and also just makes the show so unique. Time travel enters into uh, so much of Star Trek, but I want to talk about the times that Star Trek appeared. So in the 1960s, they handled certain topics in certain episodes using science fiction as a backdrop topics of war and peace, of race relations, etc. But the thing that was most obvious in retrospect was the crew of the Enterprise, a mixed crew of Asian, black, Russian at one point. That sense that everybody sort of got along because they had to. As opposed to today where everybody knows what it means to be diverse and the need to be quote-unquote uh, aware. Compare and contrast uh, the series then and the series now just based on where they fall in time. Yeah, I mean, Jordan, I think that you bring up a really good point in saying that, like, the, I think that the show is lauded by sort of critics looking back to say, oh, they did a Vietnam episode, you know, a private little war, mm. uh, where Kirk and Bones have a debate about arming, you know, balance of power and arming a, a, you know, sort of culture that doesn't have the weapons in order to keep our side in power and how that, and Bones and Kirk talk about Vietnam directly in that scene. Uh, you know, uh, and then you've got, they don't say Vietnam, but they, you know, they allude to it in a very specific way about a war that occurred in, on Earth. Um, you know, they, the original series ta tackles racism. Um, you know, the most famous examples being like, you know, let that be your last battlefield uh, where they have the people yes. with the half black, half white. Um, you know, but also racism in the way that Spock is treated over and over and mm -hmm. over again mm -hmm. in the show. However... What Walter Koenig said to me, and I did a lengthy interview with Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov in the original series, um, and Walter Koenig is a really great, great, thoughtful guy. Yes, he is. And um, I interviewed him very shortly after the January 6th um, you know, incidents in Washington, D.C., when I was researching the book. 
And what Walter said to me after we talked a lot about the state of the world was that he really felt that it was exactly what you just said, that it was the crew themselves more than the stories we told. And then he said that seeing those faces is what counted. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, not all the episodes of the original series are gold. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that, like, even Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, which is held up as this, you know, anti-racist allegory, you know, it, it scans a little bit clunky today. But Uhura speaking Swahili casually without any kind of uh, mm. fanfare in the, in the man trap is really something, because that just introduced the idea of representation in a largely white sort of, um, you know, television uh, uh, world. So I think that Walter's point about that, about the sort of the seeing the faces, seeing the crew, was the real stamp of what the original series, and he said that that he thought that was true of more than the stories we told. So to answer your second part of that question is, well, what's changed? I would say that subsequent to that, the, the various shows were able to tackle some issues more directly in a way that the original series perhaps didn't. So, you know, Deep Space Nine, uh, uh, Far Beyond the Stars, is probably one of the best examples of that. You know, Captain Sisko, played by Avery Brooks, wakes up as a 1950s black science fiction writer writing the story of Deep Space Nine. That is a pretty clear story about racism um, in a way that I don't think the original series Mm -hmm. would have ever really had the uh, ability or, or the teeth to pull off. So well said in a brilliantly acted and brilliantly written episode. And you're right, uh, like anything, you're going to do 50 episodes and and maybe 30 of them will be okay, 20 will be really good, and five will be stellar. It's the nature of any television show. Uh, You mentioned mentioned the crew, and I want to talk about uh, Nichelle Nichols particularly because her story is, I think, of all of the, uh, the, the members of the cast in the 60s, her story is the most uh, personal because she was uh, beset by uh, racism as she's growing up, of course, and uh, becomes this very important figure on the bridge of the Enterprise, wants to leave, wants to quit uh, for various reasons, and has an an intervention, if you will, from a very famous individual in that period of time. And that's a true story about Martin Luther King, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, and if if it's not, it's been corroborated and repeated (laughs) way too many times to not be true. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, there's like that's something where you, you check that story against multiple uh, accounts, and, and I did. You know, against multiple, um, you know, multiple biographies and sources and people that knew Nichelle, and it just doesn't seem it has to be. You know, and I, I, I you know, I talked to some some black scholars about their thoughts on that, and that's why there's some commentary from from some of those scholars, like Sarita McFadden, in there about sort of okay. You know, what did Martin Luther King Jr. really think about Star Trek? We don't know. But we do know that he had this conversation with Michelle Nichols and said, you need to stay on the show because of who you are and what you represent. And that, I think, is just like, that's really fascinating. Like, whether or not Martin Luther King Jr. really thought that, you know, (laughs) William Shatner was the greatest space hero of all time, I think is probably debatable. Um, but I, I, we don't, again, it's kind of unknowable, but we do know that we do know that he was a huge fan of, um, Nichelle and what was happening. And, you know, and the other story about that, that comes from Nichelle and from Roddenberry is that Roddenberry was like, great King gets it. And, and, you know, Roddenberry had ties to the NWACP before Star Trek, you know, he was working with them to protest, uh, you know, the, the censorship of his show, the Lieutenant. Um, which was had an episode that was never aired, 
um, that featured racism in in the in the in the military, in the real military, not Starfleet. <laughs> mm. um, and um, I think that that's really important to remember. It's that Roddenberry had ties to the NAACP. Gene Kuhn, the script editor, we would call that a showrunner now, on the original series, sort sort of half of the first season and all of the second season. You know, he was going to Black Panther rallies, a white guy, at, at the suggestion of his secretary, Andy Richardson, who was a black woman, who also had an influence on some of those scripts. So, you know, Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn, the two genes, who sometimes didn't see eye to eye, both involved with the important civil rights organizations at the time. They weren't virtue signaling. They were actually doing it. And I think that that's really important. Talking with Ryan Britt, a fascinating new book uh, for Trekkies and non-alike, Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. And uh, we'll talk about <clears throat> Trekkies and fans in a moment. But let's continue on with the uh, path of Leonard Nimoy, the actor, the producer, the director, the thoughtful man that he, he became. And he had a lot of issues, including alcoholism, that he beat. You tell the story throughout the book of, of him coming in and out of the Star Trek world Finally, uh, capping it off with an appearance in the 2009 J.J. Abrams reboot, and I was in the theater, of course, first day, and uh, yeah. when we yeah. saw him enter, it was it was a, a chill ran up our spines collectively, I'm sure, among many hundreds of thousands of fans. Nimoy's arc is really a fascinating one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that what's interesting the most about, the, you know, the, the Nimoy, Nimoy's casting is, again, he had, he had been somebody who had appeared on the lieutenant as a guest player. So Nimoy or Roddenberry knew him. Gene Roddenberry knew Leonard Nimoy before casting him. But it was Gary Lockwood, um, the actor Gary Lockwood, who was in um, the second Star Trek pilot where no man has gone before, more famous for being in 2001 Space Odyssey a couple years later. It was Lockwood and Dorothy Fontana, Roddenberry's uh, secretary who, who became a script editor on Star Trek, the original series, who both sort of suggested Nimoy. But it, there's this moment where Roddenberry is considering a lot of different people. <laughs> you know, in the 80s, he said that he was considering casting a black man. And he, thought, say, he was considering, you know, casting someone who, um, you know, may not look the way we think. And then he wants Martin Landau. <laughs> you know, yes, Martin, Martin Landau, Landau from Mission Impossible and Mission others. Impossible and and he did, didn't he want uh, DeForest Kelly for a time? Was that He did want DeForest Kelly, though, you know, and this is in the book, but that, you know, one historian kind of told me that he thinks that that was Roddenberry sort of like, hedging his bets and sort of messing around with DeForest Kelly a bit. Um, but the Martin Landau one is more interesting to me personally because Mission Impossible was produced by Herb Solo, who also produced Star Trek. And those shows, though they were on different networks, were filmed at the same studio. Desilu. At Desilu. Right. Right. The Lucille Ball's studio that she ran um, at that time. And, and so... <clears throat> And there is something very Spockish about Martin Landau <laughs> as an actor and as his character yes. uh, um, in Mission Impossible. And then Leonard Nimoy replaces Martin Landau on Mission Impossible briefly as Paris the Great, <laughs> Master of Disguise. And uh, Martin Landau goes on to do a Star Trek knockoff, Space 1999. So there's this weird ships passing in the night thing with Martin Landau being sort of, you know, asked by... Gene Roddenberry to think about the Spock thing. Now, the thing is, Jordan, you and I both know this. There's no way that we would be having this conversation if Martin Landau had played Spock, mm-hmm. because Leonard Nimoy created Spock. 
And I think that's what's so interesting is you can squint and go, okay, maybe Martin Landau could play Spock in an alternate dimension. But Martin Landau could not have played Spock the way we think of Spock. And I think that that is, um, you know, Nimoy invented the live long and prosper symbol, basing it on a Hebrew hand gesture right. of the letter Shin well, that he witnessed as a child. Ryan, where Martin are, Landau wouldn't have come up with that. <laughs> where, where are you physically located? I'm just going to tie this in. Where, where do you live or where do you work out of? Oh, I live in Portland, Maine. Okay. Um, I oh, was New, oh. I was a, yeah, I was a New Yorker for about 15 years. Uh, and okay. then in 2018, after having a, a, a kid in 2017, my wife and I relocated here because as a writer, you can kind of do it from anywhere. Sure. Well, the reason, um, I, reason I bring it up, is, and you know this, of course, because you're, you're so knowledgeable about all this stuff, but Leonard Nimoy grew up in Boston in the West End. Course. My dad, who's now 93, God bless him, uh, actually knew Leonard. They grew up together. They uh, performed as a singing group on a, an amateur TV show called uh, uh, Star of the Day. Who will it be? doesn't matter. Uh, community Auditions, I believe. And uh, <laughs> we have a picture somewhere. And later in life, when Nimoy was touring in a show, I think it was Fiddler on the Roof, believe it or not, as the skinny oh, Tanya, of course. Uh, that, my yeah. dad and I, went, we went, our whole family went. We went backstage, and they had a nice reunion. But the point is, He's so beloved here in New England, and you probably know this. T- Why am I saying all the things you already know? Well, the listeners don't know. There's uh, The Museum of Science has is, is, uh, requisitioned a beautiful monument in his memory that will be the, the hand, the Vulcan salute. Uh, I don't believe it's completed yet, but it's on the way, which is really yeah, cool. Yeah, I— well, if I do ever do a paperback, I might I might have to ask you if we can try. I'll try to get that photograph from you. I will I will absolutely <laughs> you know? endeavor to do that because uh, that's a really cool that's a really cool yeah because you know like all the I've interviewed Nimoy's son Adam a few times. Oh, he's um, great. great, great guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, like there's a lot of um, yeah, there's been a lot of biographies of Nimoy, you know, and so I, I didn't necessarily go into a lot of um, that. I just tried to focus on it like relative yeah. to you know the creation of Spock. But yeah, I mean, I don't think that you can... I think the other thing that people forget about Nimoy is that not only did he create Spock and not only did he define the character and invent the Vulcan nerve pinch on the set of uh, The Enemy Within. <laughs> yes. you know, he invented that, you know what I mean? So, like, invented all these things the, about who the character was. Uh, the eyebrow raise, um, you know, uh, all of that. Um, but he also then, in the 80s, after The Wrath of Khan, he directs and write, uh, he directs and sort of influences the story of the search for Spock. And then he co-writes and directs the voyage home. And then he co-writes the undiscovered country. So post 1982, the large majority of the Star Trek films featuring the classic gang, (laughs) you know, uh, with the sort of exception of the final frontier, which was written and directed by William Shatner, were all influenced by him. Um, And so that's really interesting. You know what I mean? Like not only did, was he, you know, he was really, it wasn't like he was just playing Spock. You know, he was like saying, what movie, what stories are we going to tell now? Now that we have the attention of the mainstream in the 80s, what are we going to do with it? I can't remember knowing anybody in the field of theater and art and music and movies who wrote two biographies. One, I am not Spock, and one, I am Spock. Talk (laughs) about a literary turnaround. I love that. I've read them both, of course. I want to talk to you about two other things, and you're terrific, and I hope people, I know people will buy the book and love it and check out all your work online. 
But one of the things, of course, is the fandom. And uh, I'm a self-confessed fan, but I don't necessarily wear Klingon outfits when I go to a conventions. Yeah. I've been to a few and I've interviewed people at the conventions, but I, I generally don't use prosthetics. But let's talk about the fans. And yeah. it all started very early on. And you point to the origin of the fan base, how it all got started in the 60s. Uh, just thumbnail that for us, if you will. Yeah, so I think that like what, what we're kind of, you and I, Jordan, are sort of circling around the idea of conventions, Star Trek conventions. Mm-hmm. And I think that now we kind of, in the culture we live in now, even if you don't go to those like, comic cons or whatever, um, you're aware of them in this way that is very mainstream. You know, the term cosplaying, the idea that people dress up in costumes and then go to a convention or whatever, that, you know, that was just called wearing costumes, you know, 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> but, um, you know, the origin of that big gathering of fans around one thing or around related sort of uh, you know, media products, for lack of a better word, was invented by Star Trek. And what's fascinating about it, and I'm using that term with intention, <laughs> what's fascinating about that is that there was no one peddling Star Trek to these fans. It wasn't like there was a convention created by NBC, <laughs> who was, you know, the, you know, had aired Star Trek in the 60s, to like sort of drum up excitement. You know, now you have that, right? Like you have Comic-Con, you know, is sponsored by things. Read Pop is owned by different corporations and they run some of the Comic-Cons. And so the Comic-Cons have become a place where the studios make big announcements for Star Wars and Star Trek and, you know, whatever, Doctor Who. Um, you know, that, that wasn't the case. There was, no, there was no PR sort of machine. Instead, it was reversed. The, um, or, one of the organizers of the first big Star Trek convention in 1972 was this woman named Joan Winston. And Joan Winston was a New Yorker who was, couldn't drive, right? Like that's how much of a New Yorker she was, <laughs> you know, like never drive, drove, you know, subways all the way. But she was a TV publicist and didn't work for NBC, worked for uh, ABC for a little while. So she was this kind of brassy, intelligent, connected entertainment guru who knew how to put on a show and so what the Star Trek conventions did was they were a sort of pure grassroots gathering of fans, but they were also hyper-professional insofar as that they were organized by people who understood the industry and understood promotion and understood letter-writing campaigns. And you had B. Joe Trimble, who understood uh, letter-writing campaigns um, in terms of uh, how to get science fiction readers you know, interested in things. So I think I say some version of this in the book, but there's a blend of sort of like naive sweetness and hyper-professionalism with the early Star Trek fandoms, Star Trek fandom organizers, and most of them were also notably women. Um, and I only say that because I think that there's sort of like a, un, uh, there was a stereotype at one time that, you know, science fiction conventions were sort of like, you know, for men or people who identify as men. And I think that some of that might come from comic book culture and some of that might come from uh, you know, just toxic masculinity. Some of that might come from just sort of like the overtly male nature of Star Wars initially in the 70s. But the driving force between, behind Star Trek fandom in the late 60s and mid to early to mid-70s was women, particularly Joan Winston, uh, Jacqueline Lick, Lick, Lickenberg, Deborah Langsom, and some other folks who were sort of like spearheading, how do you send the world a signal that this is important? And, you know, they were entirely successful. Um, you know. 
Well, I'm thankful that they were there, and I'm also thankful that I was able to finally read about them in your wonderful book in in concise form. So I got the real timeline, understanding all this, because it's it's a phenomenon that people outside of the world of Star Trek still scratch their heads and wonder about. But it was organic, as you say. It was natural. It was real. The, the flip side of that, though, Jordan, as we should note, is that there is also a misperception that that's all those that's the totality of Star Trek fans. And the, the flip side of this is that the people that were going to those early Star Trek conventions that ended up numbering in like 15,000 people in a hotel across from Penn Station in New York City, like, you know, in 1976, like 74 rather, wow, you know. But at the same time, the vast majority of people who were aware of Star Trek were watching it for the first time. Yes. Because it was in syndication in the 70s. And so that is when most people watch Star Trek. And by extension, most people who are Star Trek fans probably will never go to a convention. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there's way more Star Trek fans than there are um, people <laughs> yes. that go to a to go to a convention. Yeah. And this is something that is just true everywhere you look. Where you 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 like I, I tell people I, I write about science fiction and Star Trek, and suddenly I find neighbors and you know people that work at doctors' offices, and they all are like huge fans. And you know I would say that only a sliver of those people you know dress up and go to go to conventions. Well, well, so the, I, the... I wrote. Yeah, I was going to say, Brian, those people who are uh, fans in the in the vast majority of them would come up to somebody and say, "Beam me up, Scotty," not knowing that Kirk never said that. But that's yeah. okay. Yeah. We, we and, give him a pass. That's okay, and that's okay. <laughs> and I think that, and, and I think I wrote, and I think I wrote my book for those people yeah. as well, because sometimes I do find that sometimes Star Trek commentary or ephemera is sort of directed at the hardcore fans first. And I think that I wanted to I wanted to say, okay, the hardcore fans, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna anger them. And I want the hardcore fans to read the book. But I also want, yeah, somebody who's maybe, you know, not been to a convention ever or, you know, hasn't thought about the show since college or um, really loves the new shows, but is sort of like vague on the old shows. I wanted to kind of cast a wide net because those are the kinds of books I like to read. Yeah. about various things. I like to read books like that that don't necessarily assume you know everything. Well, mission accomplished on all counts. Thank I'll you. Tell you. Oh, that's I, nice. I loved it. Now, uh, just two more things. One is where we are right now, uh, the Paramount Empire is back and it's producing all kinds of great stuff. We talked about the, I think, five current series in production. And um, let's talk about the very latest series, Strange New Worlds, if we can. Because I think as a fan... I think they're, they've got everything that I've been waiting for over the last couple of years. I love Picard. Uh, I've been a little let down by Discovery because of the plot lines and a little bit – it's a little bit too politically correct for my tastes, although female captains and races of all – I'm all for that. But I'm really digging the new series because somebody must have gotten the idea that let's have some fun again. Yeah, well, I think that Strange New Worlds – I was watching um, – you know, I, I watch, as a journalist, I, I, I tend to um, – see some of the stuff, you know, a little early. Um, so with the book, I tried to cram as much Strange New Worlds into the book um, as I could. And luckily, I'd, I'd also, a lot of those characters, or actors rather, were first introduced on Discovery Season 2. Right. So that's the other thing I'll say, is that, like, um, you know, uh, you know, we wouldn't have Strange New Worlds without Discovery. Um, so there's that. Um, but yeah, like, um, I was watching an episode that won't air for two weeks uh, last night, uh, like early, and all I was thinking about, Jordan, was I was like, you know what Strange New Worlds is? It's just this great remix. 
Yes. Um, it's a great remix because yes. it's not, I think that people are saying, oh, it's just like the original series. It's like, I don't know. I actually think that it's just a, a remix of sort of all of it because I was thinking about how this one particular episode reminded me a little bit of like a, a, a little bit of a next generation flavor with a little bit of like the sort of uh, uh, character diversity of Deep Space Nine and then, you know, the sort of um, sensibilities of the new shows, but then the humor of the original series. So I keep thinking that it, it that it that Strange New Worlds is sort of in that way that I think J.J. Abrams kind of tried to do with the first uh, Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Zoe Zaldana movie mm-hmm. to kind of say, okay, let's let's um, let's cut the mainstream audience a break and just make this sort of an action adventure movie. Yeah, I think Strange New Worlds is doing that, but it's doing it with more um, sort of uh, contemplative storytelling. Right, I agree. Um, you know, like, oh, uh, Brian, yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. I, I don't think they've dropped all of the attention to important issues. I think that the character development is even. I mean, you've got a captain who's handsome; his hair keeps getting taller, but uh, that's okay. Anson Mount loved him in uh, the western he did. But the fact is, every character Hell has on wheels. Yeah. Hell on Wheels. Yeah. Every character yeah. has space to grow, and and they're interesting. But there's that sense of fun that I'm talking about that you talk well, about. I also- I also think that what's funny about Strange New Worlds is like there was the fourth episode was really dark and scary, and then there's an episode that airs tomorrow that I won't say anything about it, but it's very okay. like sort of uh, timely and dark. And then the episode that follows that is a sort of like blend. And so I think that what they're doing is kind of what you and I said at the top of our conversation was with the old Star Treks, uh, you know, whether it was the original series or the Next Generation, they would have like twenty, you know, thirty episodes, and you know, if five of those were standouts, then um, you know that would be that would be fine. I think with Strange New Worlds, it's like if there's an episode that doesn't quite land or it's not quite for you, that that's okay. It doesn't feel like the whole show's let you down. Whereas, like with some of the other newer shows with Discovery or Picard, because they're so serialized, because it's all one story, it tends to be sort of all or nothing. I think with Strange New Worlds, and to an extent with Lower Decks, you get that like, okay, that one was good. This one I didn't love as much. (laughs) This one's okay. This one was great. You know, you can kind of do that thing where you can just say, oh, I love the one where Kirk's body gets possessed by Sargon, but I didn't love the one with, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, the <laughs> Spock's the, brain the, uh, debate that goes Spock's on brain, among all love, of or, or, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, that's, that's also a really good example. It's like, that's the beginning of season three, Spock's brain. Yeah, Not, exactly. You know, everybody's favorite. But then the episode after that is the Enterprise incident, oh, my which goodness. is great. <laughs> you know, where Kirk's and Spock are undercover and they're stealing a cloaking device and uh, you know, Joanna Lumley plays this like wonderful Romulan commander who's trying to see Spock and like so so yeah, you know, I think that the strange I'm not saying that Strange New Worlds is like that, but I think that it does have the ability I guess I'm saying that it has the ability to fail. Um and I think that that's okay. And I think that people, whereas with other science fiction franchises like Star Wars or with the serialized treks like Picard and Discovery, it's usually like all or nothing. Either like the season is great or I've got some problems with it, I'm frustrated. The Strange New Worlds are kind of like, they're kind of like, well, this episode's written by a different person, this episode's written by a different person, like, just, you know, yeah. take it or leave it. Yeah, well, you know, And I think that's really refreshing. Name one series on television from the 60s that not only has spawned uh, other professionally produced series, a sling, uh, a slew of movies, 
but actual fan films. I mean, I've interviewed people who have starred as Captain Kirk, not William Shatner. I've talked to him too, but I've talked to these guys who are putting on Starfleet uniforms and copying the bridge and doing all this stuff, and they're just having a ball, and they're not doing it for profit even. I mean, that's yeah, dedication. No, I mean, yeah, that's, some, that's something with the, the, the fan film culture is something I didn't delve into as much, and that was partly because... I don't know as much about it, and I do know that there's been a lot of. I don't. I mean, I know enough about it to have. I've researched. I know more than you know the average person yeah. about it. But but it also is, is a very um, specific field, and I did consider doing delving into it a bit more than I did. Um, oh yeah, you don't need to. The maybe, book maybe, the book is fine the way it is. I'm yeah. just saying that. But what the kind of impact this series and this idea, this concept that was created way back when has? It's just incredible. Well, I think that you, you. I think that what's weird about it is that you know you can look at a few other shows in the '60s that have survived, uh, Doctor Who, right. uh, Mission Impossible. Uh, Mission Impossible, of course, connected to Star Trek oddly mm-hmm. because it's the same producer. Um, and, and Doctor Who, I think, um, though it was a children's show in the '60s and aimed at families, I think shares some of um, by accident. You know what I mean? I think shares some of Star Trek's sort of optimism and sort of. Uh, um, moral um sort of clarity right and i think that you know and you can see that in in that the um contemporary doctor who's have often referenced star trek and all those showrunners uh from russell t davies to uh steve mm-hmm. moffat have, have been like oh yeah big star trek fans but you know doctor who and mission impossible generally have the same kind of format as they did in the 60s <laughs> whereas star trek has these wildly different formats with completely new characters. You know, by definition, Doctor Who has the Doctor, a Time Lord, in every episode. Yes. Right. They've had some spinoffs to limit with limited success, but, you know, there are seven seasons of Deep Space Nine and Voyager, respectively. These shows feature very, very few appearances or mentions of the characters from the original series. To say nothing about very few mentions of characters from the next generation with you know, notable exceptions. Right. But those shows are their own, have their own fandoms inside of Star Trek mm-hmm. fandom. And I can't mm-hmm. think of anything else like that. The joke I make in the book is about like imagining a Scooby-Doo spinoff in which there are kids that live in a different city and they don't have a van and Scooby-Doo doesn't appear. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, you know uh, the joke I've been making more recently is like, imagine it with James Bond. A James Bond spinoff set in America, but Bond's not in it, and they only talk. You know, that's Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah you're you know, right. Like, you're how right. does how does that even exist? In you know, uh, and so I think that is what's really fascinating to me. And that and that and that then people said at the time and now that not only is that true of Deep Space Nine, but Deep Space Nine was even more true to the spirit of the original series because it had this sort of like on the frontier gritty feeling of mm. sort of fixing problems that you know and. Like, how does that work? And I think that that's really interesting when you consider all these other big media brands, Batman, you know, Marvel, and they're, generally speaking, they're always the same characters. Even with Strange New Worlds, a good chunk of the characters are, are, are brand new. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and even the audience surrogate character of La'an, played by Christina Chong, who's in the show a lot, and basically is the audience surrogate, is a brand new character. Sure, her ancestor is Khan, but it doesn't, you know, she's a new character. Yeah. And so I think that's really um, something to kind of like remember about Star Trek is it keeps creating new uh, 
uh, stories with new people <laughs> and not just saying, well, now we've got another person playing Batman. You hit on something very important, and that is there's there's a feeling you get when you see the starship and you see the uniform and you see the, the extent of the plot lines that take these people into adventure and uh, curiosity. That's why I love Picard. Uh, I, I ended up watching The Next Generation after it aired originally. I just stayed away because I was one of these miserable TOS original series snobs. And then I really got into The Next Generation a lot and uh, have found myself really enjoying where these shows have taken us. I want to quote Mr. Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek II. Back of the book, he says, With phasers on stun, Ryan Britt has written a comprehensive, deeply researched, here's my favorite word, merrily opinionated romp through all <laughs> things Trek. So final topic is the my Christmas movie, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I watch it several times a year. I can't, I can't help myself. And my business partner here at the studio, we've been uh, partners for 45 years. All we do all day long is quote lines from Star Trek II. Here it comes, Con. I mean, you name it. We throw these lines constantly. <laughs> Why does that film, I, I know the answer to this, and you know it so well. Why does that film remain the fan favorite? Why does it work so well? Well, yeah, I mean, um, so there's a reason why that the chapter about the Wrath of Khan uh, killing Spock in the book is really long. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, the, the thesis of the book, as, as if it's not apparent by now, is that radical change uh, is sort of what, how Star Trek sort of is defined. And the Wrath of Khan is hands down the hardest left turn that mm -hmm. they took. Mm -hmm. And I think what's what's interesting about it is that we <laughs> this doesn't directly answer your question, but people consider that to be a classic film that sort of defines the original cast. But at the time that it was made, it was a radical departure. It was a darker film. The uniforms were more militaristic. The tone of it was a little bit grimmer. Uh, Kirk was contemplating old age and middle age. Uh, we had the idea that Kirk was a deadbeat dad. Mm -hmm. uh, Spock dies. Uh, you know, we're we're talking about uh, the crew getting older. The Enterprise is crewed by uh, students. The Enterprise is a school at the beginning of the film. All of these things are pretty rowdy when you think about it. And mm -hmm. you know, now we're very used to like dark and gritty reboots. But I mean, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan was dark and a dark and gritty reboot and yet it brought in all the faithful and as the producer uh, bob salem said to me it also brought in the people who maybe only went to church every once in a while <laughs> the star trek church <laughs> you know yeah. and now they were all back for you know christmas mass or whatever you want to say and i think that the reason it did that is because what meyer did you know because meyer meyer took five uh, screenplays that had been attempted, and he merged them into one screenplay without credit um, because they needed to make a, a better screenplay. What he did is he looked at what the essence of the characters were and then crafted uh, a movie that took those characters a little bit more seriously than any of the other narratives had before. And I think that's what it is, is that it is both a mainstream radical departure for Star Trek that stayed really true to the characters and their relationships. And more, most importantly, it allowed those characters to change. Because, yeah, we got some sense that Kirk and Spock were changing in the motion picture, but in the original series, these are static characters for the most part. They don't undergo a lot of change. In The Wrath of Khan, you know, even like you get glimmers of, you know, Chekhov was promoted. He was serving on another ship. Like the whole 
status quo of, of the of the Star Trek world was saying this is not necessarily a static world anymore. Things can change. Uh, Kirk can you know lose his confidence and gain it back. Spock can die. Uh, you know Chekhov can move off the the ship, etc. Um, and then on top of all of that, the writing is just deeply rooted in wonderful literature like Moby Dick mm. and Charles Dickens. Yes, um, and that makes gives the film this kind of like veneer of of being a work of classic art that's always existed. You know, Khan saying, you know, quoting Moby Dick, quoting <laughs> Captain Ahab at the end. Yeah, I spit my last breath at thee. Yes, you know, Jordan, I've been at readings of Moby Dick in New York City, marathon readings of New York of Moby Dick, where we read you know passages of Moby Dick for you know several days. Tons of writers you know read out loud. Every time when that part happens, <laughs> somebody reads that part that part out. At least four or five people in the audience yell "Khan" <laughs> because the wrath of Khan yeah. like stole Moby Dick. Yeah, it you know? did. It did. And and then like, Ricardo Montalban was was the perfect yeah. person to and then, it, those and then it stole Tale of Two Cities. You know, mm-hmm. with Kirk ending the film, it was a far far better thing than I do today. You know, like. It, it was the film opens with Kirk, uh, best of times, worst of times. Message Spock. Spock. You know, like all of that stuff. It's just like I didn't hadn't read Tale of Two Cities before I watched The Wrath of Khan. Had you? You know. Like, yeah. I, no. No. I I, I I get it. And I and I one fun fact. One fun fact. And we keep coming back to Nick Meyer, but he's so brilliant directing. I think it's Shatner's best work as Kirk, and in, in most of the yeah. work I've seen. And directing it him, is. he said he wore him out. So that he yeah. wouldn't be so over the top as William yeah. Shatner. I mean, Shatner throws lines in, with such timing and such grace only because yeah. he was worn out and just wanted to get out of there. I think. Well, you referenced it actually. Here it comes. <laughs> um, because, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, like that. Like that one is, I think, a good example of one yeah. where you really like. You can imagine that in the original series of him kind of hamming that up. Here it you know. comes, Con. All, All right. right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, but like there is, he is, he is a little bit understated in that film. And that's the other funny thing about the Wrath of Khan is I call that chapter killing Spock, but the movie's not really about Spock. <laughs> you know, the movie is, uh, is about Kirk. Yeah. And that's the other thing that's really weird about it is that it, it's like, and it works in this way that like almost shouldn't, it's like, here's a movie and think about how much they borrowed from it subsequently. Like the entire setup of Picard is very similar. Mm-hmm. Picard's retired. He's, restless, he's not sure, he has regrets. Michael Shabone freely admits that Nicholas Meyer is an influence on him, mm-hmm. you know, on them crafting that. But then you see it in, in, in a variety of ways, even what they're doing with Pike on Strange New Worlds is reminiscent of Kirk's sort of like, uh, you know, struggles. Um, right, soul The idea of, yeah. of, of not being able to, you know, Pike, they're kind of inverting it, right? Because Pike now is facing a perpetual no-win scenario. Mm. And I think that's what it comes down to, right? Like, the movie is about can you can you cheat fate? Can you beat an unbeatable um, situation? And the movie has two answers. And the answer, the, what, the first answer is you can if you redefine <laughs> the conditions of the right, test, right, 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 right. The second answer, though, is no. Sometimes right. you can't. Yeah. And you have to learn to live with that. And that, I think, is interesting because the movie just isn't about one thing. Kirk wins but loses Spock. So, you know, re- redefine, you know, that's why it's so great when Spock says, uh, says to him at the end, I never took the Kobayashi Maru test. Mm. What do you think of my solution? Which was sacrificing himself, the one element that Star Trek fans could not imagine. 
they know, they actually yeah you you have those letters in the book the protest letters and and posters and mm-hmm. pamphlets and it's it yeah. seems it, you talk about the tale of two cities it almost seems like it's from that era the <laughs> 17 yeah but i mean but i think what's so great about that is that it's a good reminder that like there that was like a you know it was a majority of fans obviously but it was big enough noise that it was a concern and then that ended up influencing the way that Harv Bennett and Bob Salen and Nick Meyer made film. You know, like that they they were, they had a spoiler. We would call that a spoiler now. You know, and so then they were like, well, how do we how do we use this to our advantage? Funny story. Then, I got to share yeah. with this. That, okay, it's 1981. The movie's about to come out. I had not seen it yet. Uh, it would just come out, right? And I'm in uh, Howard Johnson's, which is no longer in existence, on the highway after doing a a DJ gig with my partner, okay? We're in Howard Johnson's having pancakes and coffee at 1 o'clock in the morning. There's a guy right behind us, big burly guy with uh, mustache and tattoos, turns around. He must have overheard us say the word Star Trek, and he, he actually says in this voice, I got to tell you guys, I shed a tear when Spock died. <laughs> and I, I first that. of all, I said, you son of a bitch, you spoiled a movie, but we knew it was coming. But yeah, I, yeah, I'll yeah, never yeah, forget yeah. that. We've been quoting yeah, that guy for 42 yeah. years. That's great. I Isn't that, that great? I love Isn't that, that story. Great? Yeah, that's a great story. Well, well I've got to wrap up with you in a second. Let's talk about one more thing and then sure. we'll get going. Uh, well, uh, the, the, the thing I want to talk about is you, because uh, I know you've been so kind to give me your time, but you've got a lot going on. What's Fatherly? Tell me what that is. Well, Fatherly is a, is, is a website for uh, uh, parents who are dads or identify as dads, and it's uh, you know primarily a parenting advice and life advice and uh, exercise and, uh, um, you know, you know what questions you have about mm-hmm. vaccines and, you know, what medicine and things like that, health and science. Um, but I, I write for the, I'm the editor of the entertainment section. There. Excellent. So, so, you know, what I do is I, I um, you know, I don't do a lot of Star Trek over there, but I do some, um, you know, uh, and, we, you know, we'll write about things that are relevant. Um, we write about music, too. So we're covering a lot of music. Okay. So that's, that's, that's a... That's my day job, and then um, that's part of the same company uh, that's called the, the Bustle Digital Group, and I also write for Inverse, where I've been an editor. Uh, I was an editor, now I'm a writer. I kind of demoted myself. I, for Kirk from Star Trek Four to Star Trek Five. I, I, I stopped <laughs> being an admiral. I went back to uh, you know, where you uh, where you need writer. to be. Well, I, yeah, if I ever. Yeah, yeah. If I ever get a chance to bump into you at some saloon, uh, the Sarian Brandy and Romulan Ale is on me. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Britt, Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. You don't have to be a Trekkie. In fact, it's it's fun reading for anybody, and I really highly recommend it. Thank you, my friend. Well, th- thanks, Jordan. Really, really fun conversation. Ryan Britt has a website. It's ryanbrittwriter.com, ryanbrittwriter.com. Don't miss Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World, a great new book now out in hardcover. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to everyone at Chart Productions in Boston, where we produce this and many other podcasts, and, of course, to you, the loyal members of the Federation, for sticking with us and adding to the audience numbers. Appreciate it very, very much. Till next time, this is Jordan, as always, saying be well so you can do good. Oh, and live long and prosper. See you next time. Take care.